My girlfriend refused to sleep inside the same room as me. And now, I know why. Written by Why 2 Just Dog I met Julie at a bar. She was drinking alone at a table in the back. She kept exchanging glances at me every few minutes, so I kept returning a smile. I walked over and introduced myself, but my eyes were drawn to the scar on her neck. It looked almost like a faded barcode. When she noticed me staring for too long, she grabbed my arm to pull me towards the seat across from her. We hit it off immediately. Jolie lived alone in an apartment, just a few miles from the house I had recently purchased. This proximity to each other allowed us to date frequently. Our interests were aligned, which certainly helped us ease our way into each other's comfort zones. We both loved outdoor activities, such as hiking and kayaking, but we also appreciated the quieter moments inside where we snuggled up on the couch and watched TV. Jolie had a thing for old school cartoons. You know, the ones where chaos ensues between characters as they chase each other around for the entire episode. Five months into our relationship, I asked Jolie to move in with me. Even though we had hooked up, we never officially spent the night at each other's places. One of us always returned home before going to sleep. You can't blame someone for wanting to take it slow. I understood. At the same time, though, I fell in love. I was ready to take it to that next level. She agreed to move in with me under one condition. That we sleep in separate rooms. As deflating as that was to hear... I respected her wish. As our first night living together was approaching the bedtime hour, Jolie lifted herself from the couch and gave me a small peck on the cheek. No coming in my room tonight. I mean it. I'll see you in the morning, babe. I know, I know. I was beyond excited to be living together, so I had trouble sleeping during that first night. After tossing and turning for an hour, I heard a noise from Julie's room next door. A slight tapping on the wall, followed by footsteps. I did not want to spook her and barge in, so I stayed in bed and tried to ignore it. But the tapping continued for two hours. I eventually fell asleep and refrained from discussing it with her the next morning but then the noises returned on the second night I tiptoed out of the room and slowly opened her bedroom door and there she was on my left standing inches away from the wall completely silent eyes open she had no idea I was present She just stood there for two minutes and didn't say a word. My skin shivered when she turned 
and made eye contact with me as my head jutted just inside her room. I froze. I had heard about people who sleepwalked, and my understanding was that you should just let them do their own thing and not startle them. I remained still until Julie crawled back into her bed. Think you were sleepwalking last night. Do you remember? I asked during breakfast. Did you come inside my room? I specifically told you not to. I'm sorry, but all the noise was scaring me. It's okay. I should have been upfront with you about it. It's just something I sometimes do. I just don't want you to get hurt, though. It is dangerous to be near a sleepwalker. I hope you can understand. I nodded and hugged her. On night three, I made a mistake. Julie was asleep, but I remembered I had left my glasses on her bedside table. I wasn't quite ready to go to bed myself, so I figured I could quietly make my way inside without waking her. She didn't even flinch as I reached near her to grab my glasses. The only problem was, I forgot to close her door on the way out. After hitting the hay later that night, I felt an immense weight on my body. I awoke to Julie sitting on top of me. Julie, are you okay? I whispered. I lifted my head to get a better look at her. She was holding what appeared to be, at least from my tired vision, a hammer in her left hand. Julie's gaze remained firmly on my face. As I tried to remove my right arm from under the blankets, Julie must have sensed too much movement for me. Found you! She shouted. Julie raised the hammer, and as she brought it into the air, I realized it was one of those meat mallet hammers. I was able to turn my head just enough to avoid a direct shot to the face, but she did connect with my right cheek, making me cough up a few bloody teeth. I shoved her off the bed before she landed another blow. I then grabbed my phone and ran outside. Thankfully, Jolie did not follow me. She stayed inside. When I walked back inside with a police officer, we found Jolie asleep in her bed. I shook her shoulder and woke her up. But Jolie had no recollection of what she had done. She apologized over and over, crying in my arms. I told the officer I would be okay, that he could leave. But I was too rattled from the incident to sleep in the same house as her. I told her I would get a motel room for a few nights to think things over while she stayed put. While I was at the motel, I researched online to see if I could dig up anything on Julie that might help me better understand any trauma she may have experienced in the past. I messaged a handful of her friends that I found through social media to tell them what happened. 
I had messaged one guy who appeared in a large volume of photos with Julie. I found out he was one of her doctors, Dr. Perkins. He agreed to speak with me on the phone. And what I learned sent a chill down my spine. Julie had almost killed a man the same way she attacked me. The man was able to grab the meat hammer from her and he ended up connecting with her neck, hence the scar. Dr. Perkins told me that from his observations of her, Julie feared moving objects while she was in her sleepwalking state. He pleaded with me to have her move out. He said it was not safe to live together. I was torn. On the one hand, I still cared for her. But on the other hand, she almost killed me. In the end, I followed Dr. Perkins' advice. Julie, frazzled and heartbroken about the breakup, moved back into an apartment alone. Somehow, we have remained decent friends. I still check up on her occasionally, just to see how she is doing. Of course, she tells me everything is just fine. My name is Cassandra, written by Fainting Goat. My name is Cassandra, and I can see the future. I'm sure some of you are rolling your eyes right now in disbelief, which is the point of my namesake. No one believes me, and like Cassandra of old, I see tragedies. It took a while before I realized that I was different. I couldn't make sense of my visions at first. They were horrifying. Terrible things flashing right before my eyes. Like the last slides of an old film as the reel runs out. Then, as I began to understand that these images weren't reality, I assumed everyone had these strange visions. It wasn't something you'd ask your parents about, or perhaps I did, and my parents dismissed it as childish ideas until I stopped asking. I don't really remember, I was young. It wasn't until my great uncle died that I realized that this wasn't how the world was. It was my first brush with death and I'd seen it earlier, him flailing at the windows of his house before his struggles trailed off, and he succumbed to the smoke and the flames that consumed him. At the funeral, I listened intently to the adults speak in hushed tones about how abrupt this was, how no one had expected it, how the house was new enough that it shouldn't have had any faulty wiring like that. How they wish he'd remembered to change the batteries to the smoke alarm and woken while there was still time to get out. 
heard all these things and thought, but didn't you know? Didn't you see? I learned two things that day. The first was that the visions I saw wasn't just a child's fancy. They were premonitions of the future. Specifically how the person I was looking at would die. The second was that I was the only one who saw them. I didn't learn my next lesson until I was older. I was in fourth grade. I was shy, but that was all. I didn't have many friends. There was a boy in my class that would try to climb the maple tree in the playground during recess. The teachers made him get down each time. One morning, I walked into the classroom and as my eyes traveled across the students leading to my desk, I saw him lying twisted at the bottom of the tree, his head bent over to touch his shoulder. I ran to my teacher and urgently told her that I had something important to say in private. We went out into the hall and I told her that he was going to die today while climbing the tree. She seemed upset at what I was telling her and at the time I interpreted as she was angry at me for doing something wrong. Now that I am older, I can understand how disconcerting it might be to have one of your students suddenly telling you in all seriousness that someone was going to break their neck and not in an abstract fear, but in a concrete sense that this would happen soon. She told me not to say such disturbing things and we went back into the classroom. But I was desperate, so I began to tell everyone, the gym teacher, the math teacher, the other students. Finally, I was sent to the principal's office to calm down. While I was there, the bell rang and my peers went out to recess. While I sat crying in the principal's office, as he gently tried to explain that there was nothing to be afraid of. My classmate climbed higher than he normally did in defiance of the teachers yelling at him. He stepped on a branch that broke and fell and landed on his neck. It snapped and he died instantly. None of the other students talked to me after that. They remembered how I had told them that he would die, and then he did. The teachers treated me warily, like I was a snake waiting to strike. There were, of course, sessions with the counselor. My parents were called in, and I began to be bullied in small, subtle ways snickering in silence as I went through the hallways. Sodas poured into my locker. 
It was a relief when my family moved to another state. I could start over. But by then, I learned my lesson. When a student at the new school started treatment for leukemia, I didn't tell anyone the chemotherapy wasn't going to save her and her death shocked everyone who had all been hoping that she would recover. At least they weren't angry though. They didn't hate me for it. I never again told someone that they would die and I suffered in silence. Seeing these horrific things and knowing that when I said goodbye to someone, that was the last time I would see them alive. I suppose my story could end there, with me being the silent and resentful Cassandra, doomed to watch but never able to act. But it doesn't. A year ago, I picked someone up. I was driving for a rideshare app, and as soon as he got in the car, I saw a vision of him thrashing in my backseat, body rigid, face red, and gasping for air. I could see some of the scenery through the rearview window. It would happen after we got off the highway near his destination, roughly 25 minutes until he had a heart attack and died. I was anxious as I drove towards the on-ramp. He tried to make small talk, but I remained silent, not knowing what to say. It didn't matter if that would normally affect my rating. He was going to die before he could give it. Morbid thought, I admit. I wanted to scream. Bad enough that I had to see how people would die and couldn't do anything about it. But now I was going to have someone die in my car right in front of me. Unless I pulled off a few exits early. He piped up that I'd taken the wrong exit. But I said nothing. I just kept driving. His annoyance quickly turned to anger. He berated me, demanded that I turn around and stop fucking around, and then he demanded that I let him out. Instead, I turned into the drive for the hospital's ER department and finally stopped the car. He wrenched at the door handle and let himself out, screaming epithets at me called to me all sorts of horrible names. I waited, my heart pounding, hand shaking. There was a cold sweat on my brow. Just five more minutes now, if my estimation was correct. He stalked up and down the sidewalk, face growing redder, cursing and punching furiously at his cell phone. Then... As a security guard was coming out to see what the commotion was, it happened. He fell to his knees and clutched his chest. The physicians inside were quick to respond, and he was willed inside. I didn't stay to see what happened next. 
I drove away and found some place quiet to pull over and calm down. I think he appreciates what I did. I know he lived because he gave me a perfect rating and the biggest tip the app would allow. After that, I had an idea. Maybe I couldn't save people by telling them what would happen, but I could still save people. I still drive for this rideshare app. This time, I have an ulterior motive. I make sure to look at my clients when they get in the car, and rarely, very rarely, I see something. It isn't always as simple as the man that had the heart attack. The timing hasn't nearly been so convenient since then. I had to be smart about it. I take them to where they need to go, drop them off, and leave. Then I write down their starting location and destination. Days, maybe weeks later, I start monitoring these points, seeing if it was part of their routine. If it isn't, there isn't much I can do after that, but sometimes it is. I follow them. I wait until I have an opportunity, and then I save them however I can. Sometimes it's as simple as slashing someone's tires so they can't drive to a restaurant as planned, or a quick trip to the hardware store, and then ringing someone's doorbell, posing as a representative of the city's home safety commission, handing out free carbon monoxide detectors. The first time, I was nervous, but it was more that I would be caught. I didn't see them dying of a brain hemorrhage at all. I saw them dying of a rapidly growing brain tumor they had no idea existed. So I threw a brick at her head and I could only hope that they saw something that would clue the doctors off to the tumor's existence when she went to the ER for a concussion. The person that was going to drown? Well, I went to the bowling aisle he had his league at and dropped my ball on his hand as he was reaching for his own. I didn't even have to fake cry because I was sorry I'd hurt him. But it's hard to go swimming when your hand is broken. I can only hope that his seaside vacation was spent drinking margaritas safely on the beach. And the person that was going to die in a ski accident, well, it's hard to ski when both your legs have been amputated after being struck by a hit and run driver. Sometimes the guilt eats at me. I can hear their screams in my head if I sit still for too long. I don't want to hurt people. I'm so scared every time I do. Scared I'll get caught. Scared they'll get away. Scared that I won't hurt them in just the right way to circumvent the fate waiting for them. My hands still shake each time, but it only takes a moment of resolve, and then it's over, for me at least. The road to recovery is long for the people I save. 
but at least they would be alive by the end of it. At least they're alive. I guess I'm just stalling by writing this, working up the nerve to go into the basement and put a nail into the eyes of the person tied up down there. The one I saw driving on a nondescript highway at an unidentifiable time of the year. Just before another car swerved into their lane and they lost control and rolled onto opposing traffic. Their family was in the car with them. It's a horrible thing seeing how people will die. Seeing their last minutes, the fear and the despair. I've lived with it my whole life. Can you blame me for wanting to do something to stop it? To banish these horrible visions I live with? To save someone? Instead of pretending everything is fine and then just going on my own way? Knowing what I know? I wish they could understand what I'm trying to do for them. But I am Cassandra and I am doomed as much as my namesake was. I don't want your sympathy. I don't care about your anger. I just want someone to understand that if our paths ever meet, I'm doing this to save you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 